Okay. So normally, first of all, hi to all the podcast listeners. We're jumping right in quickly. Normally I do a cold open, but this time, I guess it's still a cold open because we just jumped in in the middle of a sentence, but it doesn't really feel the same. And I'm bringing on my dad. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Third time, actually. The last one was short, but we just did one recently. And then uh, episode 15 we had together. So we're bringing you in for the intro because I had a guy on this week named Richard Houghton, and he has written a lot of music books. You love music. I love music. We connect over that all the time. And I actually didn't find this guy. You did. And he, it's hard to describe exactly what he's doing, but he's writing music books through fan experiences. So he's asking people to write blurbs about a concert they went to about a given band and then putting all of those together in an anthology of sorts. And how did you find him? Because you are now in his most recent book on Cream, which is awesome. So you found him, sent it in. He said, yes. How did this all happen? So he had seen a post or a comment that I had made in answer to somebody's post about being at that concert in 1967 and seeing Cream and the Who. He messaged me on Facebook and he says, oh, I saw you comment on seeing Cream. I'm compiling a book about people's experiences of seeing Cream. Right. Would you like to be in it? And I said, absolutely. That's great. Right. I said, I don't know if I have too much to add. He says, basically, what you said over that comment is exactly what I need. Right. Just short, so quick says, bursts of your experience yes. and what it was like. Yeah. Yeah. And then he asked me a, a multitude of questions about other bands, the things that he's been doing, things that he wants to do. And I have experience in possibly three of those coming up. So hopefully awesome. I'll be mentioned in those books as well. Yeah. But yeah. It was so cool when you first said it, you were like, I'm going to be in a book. And I'm like, what do you possibly mean by that? What is that? <laughs> I don't know. Like, where? how? So yeah, we found out about this guy. And then even, he's super nice, by the way. And I hope everyone enjoys it. And he was very cool, cool enough to come on and talk to me about all this. But even when you sent it in, we were both like, well, we still don't know like what this is going to be. Like, right. We didn't know much about him, how many books he had, all that kind of stuff, which I'll get into in a second. And then when you got it back and you were like, it's coming out. And you bought the nice hardcover book and I was just there and I was flipping through it. And I'm like, this is so awesome. It came out like way better than you expected. Right. Cause that's how I feel. Oh, de definitely. It's, it's much, I thought it was going to be, I actually, I don't know what I thought it was going to be just yeah. as you said, but it exceeded my expectations for sure. Yeah. Big time, big time to the point where I want to buy some of the other ones. We talk about some of the other ones that he had. There's a bunch of them. And I don't want to spoil all of it, but if you like a lot of different bands, like there's a Beatles one, which I feel like we have to get probably. Yes. And if you're a Beatles fan and haven't heard episode 15, we talked a lot about that. So go back there and then come back here. But yeah, we got to get the Beatles one. How many Beatles books do you have? I feel like not that many for all the Beatles shit you have. It's not that many books. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Seven. Maybe I'm probably, wrong. probably about eight, not counting individual biographies. It's a shame Which, we don't use video because we would have just had you leaning right over the camera to go read your bookshelf. And down. <laughs> the sad thing is I only have two biographies out of the four. Right. And it's the living, the living guys. George Harrison had a biography, but after he died, it became too super expensive. Uh, An autobiography, I, you mean? Uh, well, it's done by him, his With wife. With him and someone else. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And John Lennon, there's about 50 of them. And I don't right. know which are the good ones. So... I've yeah. been holding off. Well, Richard and I talked a lot about that, the music book industry and all that kind of stuff. You have a ton. Are you reading any music ones now? What are you reading now? Now, right now I'm reading a, a basically like a political Don Lemon book, yeah, right. but uh, I have two on hold that I have already. Uh, Gene Cornish from the Rascals huh. and a group that I love from England called 10CC. Right. Right. That I ordered that. from England because I couldn't even get it here. Well, good news. We love the English people. And we have one of them on the podcast today. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. So I reached out to him after you were in the book and I was like, I got to know more about this, what it's like, how is he going to get these people's opinions? How does he choose? So we went into all that kind of stuff and I'll post the links in the description to his Amazon page and all that kind of jazz. But yeah, I thought it was fun to have us do this together because you were the reason that I found this guy. I'm trying to decide which of his books I should buy. I feel mm. like we need to buy the Beatles one. I can't buy all... Uh, spoiler alert, I asked how many there are, so you're going to listen to that twice. But there's a lot of books. 
And I'm thinking I'm between Hendrix, Zeppelin, and Black Sabbath. I'm going to get the Beatles one. I feel like we just have to have that. But as a second yeah. one, Hendrix, I feel like could be really interesting because it's stuff you haven't heard of. You saw him, didn't you? Yes. Uh, I saw him before he was famous. Right. Yeah. Uh, but not not the Jimi Hendrix experience. No. But he was still playing. I mean, still him. He was playing, but it was like it wasn't hard music like that. It was like bluesy. It was bluesy, rocky, a little bit of soul, more soul, sort of like Band of Gypsy stuff. Okay. Wow. Oh. Yeah, because, you know, he, he was just finding himself because he had just gotten off playing with the Isley Brothers and Little Richard. Oh, so wow. he was he was that's mired sweet. in that funk. Well, that's that's what made him so different than the other guitar gods. He had that rhythm thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. Little Richard's so underrated. But anyway, that's a whole nother podcast. But then Zeppelin, I feel like, would be a cool, different hard rock look at like that perfect era that they defined yeah. i feel like that would be fun but i'm thinking sabbath is the dark horse here because you're reading stories from the fans about the yes. shows and oh, that yeah. <laughs> like imagine the fans that were there for all the shit ozzy was doing i've been to two of sabbath to one yes i've been where? to uh one at the uh where was it the not the Fillmore. it was the academy of music which was on 14th Street in Manhattan, and one in a big nightclub on Long Island. And this club had every big group. I saw the Allman Brothers there. I saw oh, wow. Cactus there, the James Gang, a myriad of groups. And it's a big club, and there's a stage that steps off, and you walk 10 feet to the dressing room. We would hang out on the side of the stage and meet these people. We met Tony Iommi. Wow. Yeah, for well, a brief cool. second, you know, I mean. But still, you got to say hi to him. You got to see him in the flesh. Absolutely. It was a totally different experience than seeing them at the Fillmore where you're a mile away. And it's yeah, a it's a different world. Right. Yeah, yeah. We talked about was, that actually with Richard about how there used to be like so much less security and it was like a, a less polished version of everything. So you get these cooler fan experiences like you're talking of about. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I'm, on that Beatle thing. I'm afraid you're not going to get much musical content. You don't think so? Because when, no, because when the Beatles played in concert, it was only from 63, here in America, 64 to 66. Yeah, but still. 64, but you couldn't really hear the music from the screaming. So most of the experiences uh, are going to be the mass hysteria in the audience yeah. and how cute and how cute yeah, they Yeah, but are. you know what? The, the, but that is still, here's what I like about Richard's books. That is exactly what you're hitting on. It's not necessarily reading about the music and the experience of the band. You can get that from a million different Beatles books that you want to read. They're all available. However, yes. you don't actually hear the stories of the hysteria and the screaming. You see pictures of it and you hear the girls screaming and whatever. It's the same 10 clips that they show, yeah. but you don't hear like personal experiences of it. So I actually think that's a little bit cooler because it's different from what you're it normally going to get. I've heard some people describe the experience and, and the smell of piss. <laughs> because sales work but yeah well because these girls that got all hysterical would literally pee their pants wow they got they got so <laughs> frenzied so and much pee in the air that you can't ignore I've, it i've heard i've heard that a number of times i imagine that at black sabbath concerts there's also a smell of piss but i don't think it's exactly the same reason <laughs> no <laughs> yeah that was yeah. kind of different yeah okay so quickly i know we're we could go on i don't want to go on for two hours and then i actually bastardize the podcast that i do have to go to but cream talk a little bit about cream quickly for a couple of reasons. One, I want to put some of their songs in the background of this and we need to talk over mm -hmm. it so the copyright bots don't attack us. Secondly, I feel like people might have heard of Cream, but don't necessarily know their songs that much. Sunshine of Your Love is probably their biggest one. Um, yes, and Badge. Yeah, and Born Under a Bad Sign I really like, but everybody does that, but they also did it. So I'm yes. going to play snippets of those in the background. So if you are listening closely, you'll hear it. But talk to me about Cream. It's Clapton, and go on. You give Jack your Bruce. Spiel. Okay, so that era, there was a couple of really big bands. It was the Hendrix Experience, Cream, those were the two major English ones. Okay, then there was groups over here that were just coming out and starting to make their own. But the Hendrix thing was a whole new sound and experience. Cream was more of a blues rock combo that was different for the time. It was heavy blues. You didn't hear heavy blues. So it was, if you can 
excuse the expression more musical but it really wasn't because those hendrix guys were great but what you took from hendrix was the psychedelia right cream the didn't ambience. do that yes cream wasn't psychedelic really until their second album their first album which is when i saw them was more uh, grounded in the blues yeah and uh, i remember the song that i saw them do was i'm so glad and they just keep repeating i'm so glad i'm so glad i'm so glad that's like a hundred times they have very little words there was a couple of verses in between but it was right. more or less an excuse to have solos just play right yeah yeah, yeah. and i that makes I, sense. You, i don't i don't remember the music i was a 13 year old excited to be at my first concert with Wilson Pickett, The Who, Cream, yeah, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. So I was, I didn't pee, but <laughs> I was very excited. So the, the experience. What a callback. You can tell you've been on the podcast three times now. You're starting to really get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The experience was more than the music for me at that point. Yeah. But that's what's fun about these books. I don't want to go on forever and we could continue to do this. I do have another question, actually. But that is what's cool about those books is that you get that feeling. You might not get a biography of the band, but go get that somewhere else. You can find that anywhere on Amazon. Right. Richard's books are very different. You don't find this collection of experience. It almost feels like I was reading through the cream ones and I was like, it doesn't feel like I was there. I wasn't, but it feels way closer to that than, yes. you know, it's no different than you telling stories right now of the places you've been and you're like, you feel more connected to it. So I think in some ways it's cooler than just a normal biography because you get the feeling of what it was like at the time rather than just reading facts about the person or whatever. Right. Um, and then they will have two different people at the same show and their comments are crazily different. Yeah. yeah. Well, 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 don't. All right. We're spoiling the podcast. Now. Okay. <laughs> now, okay. <laughs> you can edit that out. Yeah, no, 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 we keep it in. We keep it in. <laughs> One thing I have to ask, I feel like Ginger Baker doesn't get any credit for existing in this band because Jack Bruce and Eric Clapton are both in the band's three-piece band. And the only, I, I don't know that much about him, but we tell it, there's a story about him later, so keep listening. But did he do, a, I guess Jack Bruce didn't do a lot of other stuff either. I guess because we both play the bass, we know him better. Did Ginger Baker do other stuff with other projects? or He went right into his own band called Ginger Baker's Air Force. He's a drummer, by the and, way, for people who are listening. Yeah, but he got a big jazz band and a bunch of conga players and stuff. And he was always more into the world music. Is that good? It's Some of it's good and some of it's excessive. Yeah. Which he was. At, at the time, Ginger Baker was renowned as the best drummer in the world. It was the guy from Hendrix that was kind of like sideman kind of thing. Mm. And that's not true. That guy was tremendous as well. Right, right, right. I don't know what it is, but the, he provides a really full sound for them that you don't even realize it's a three-piece band almost. Yeah. I mean, if you look at their last reunion concert in uh, 2005, when they did the reunion, yeah, Ginger Baker was holding it together. I thought Eric Clapton was okay, but kind of weak. Honing it in a little. Yeah. And Jack Bruce was tremendous, but he was very sickly at the time. He had, he had to sit down right. half the time. He had kidney problems and liver, yeah, which yeah. ultimately killed him a year or two later. Right. Yeah. Sad. Anyway, the reason we go on about Cream is because that's the most recent book. That's the one you're in. That's the one he just yes. came out with so that's the one you should go buy if you're interested and you like this podcast and i'll put the amazon links in the description he has some more coming out that we'll talk about during the podcast that i want to buy and uh yeah that's it i don't know how long this was but we could have done 10 times the amount i'm trying to cut us off so we can get to the actual thing but Absolutely. thank you for coming on and doing the intro anytime happy to do it hit the music let's roll right into it also follow at the link underscore podcast i got to sneak that in right before anyway hit the music let's go I found out about you because my dad had an excerpt in your most recent book, The Cream One. And he's telling me about it. And he's like, so I think I'm going to be in a book. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and I had never really heard of your books before yet. And he's telling me about it. I'm like, wow, that's such an interesting, different idea that you never hear about because you hear about a million music books and I have a million and I love them. But this feels new and fresh and I guess I just have to start with how did you possibly come up with this idea to put all the fan experiences into one place? Well, like you, I'm a big music fan and collect music books and I've got a room full of shelves 
sure. crammed with books on different bands. My favorite band is the Rolling Stones. And I've oh. managed to collect about 200 different books just about the Stones. Wow. And it was going to see them in Stockholm in Sweden. It was July 2014. I went with my son, who would have been 18 at the time. And it was the beginning of July. Mick Jagger celebrates his birthday at the end of July. I think he was turning 72 years old, maybe 71. The years do sort of uh, catch up with you very quickly. (laughs) And I got to thinking, these guys have been going for 50 years and Mick will have fans from more than 50 years ago. And I was thinking about the 200 Stones books I've got and thinking nobody's ever captured the memories of those fans from 50 years ago before. You go to a show now and people will be holding their phones up, they'll be filming the gig and it'll be on YouTube sometimes before you've driven home. You can watch it on on your iPhone or on your tablet or on your computer at home within minutes. Sometimes it can be streamed live. But all those shows from the 60s and the 70s where actually getting a camera into the concert was was a challenge because often cameras weren't allowed anyway and they were gigantic mem- <laughs> you couldn't really yeah, hide yeah. them no, no. <laughs> and the memories that people had would still be in their heads or maybe they told them to their nearest and dearest they told them to their friends down the pub but they weren't necessarily captured in print and i just thought particularly given the the age of the stones audience the older fans being in their 60s and 70s it would be great to try and capture some of those memories in print if possible and i love that go back in time revisit those times before backstage passes before laminates before there were tons of security stopping you get anywhere near the stage etc back when it was all still a little bit amateurish and exciting and raw and different yeah i totally agree the vibe has changed although in some ways i still think you could do it now because those people that are recording through their phones i always feel like you're not how are you even getting the concert experience i have such a pet peeve about people that just go to the concert and watch it through their phone and i'm like what are you, why are you doing this? No one wants to see your crappy iPhone video of a concert. Just enjoy it. And then you have the story to tell, like you're gathering. And for all we know, in 20 more years, someone or you are going to want to write more books about current concerts. And it's just a funny thing. But uh, I do love that. Well, I, I was flipping through the book. That was the first one I read because my dad had the copy of the Cream one, which just came out. You can get it on Amazon, right? That's right. I'll put the link in the description of the podcast so everyone can go to it. But I was just flipping through and I'm like, first of all, all of these are so different from one another, which makes it really fun and interesting. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, if I read a Cream biography, my dad has a Jack Bruce biography, which is great. And he has Clapton ones and stuff. But I can kind of look up all that stuff on the internet. Not that the books aren't good. It's just factual. But your kind of stuff, I will never, ever get my hands on without doing the insane amount of work that I'm sure you did, which brings me to another question. A, how the hell do you get your hands on so many different fan experiences? And B, it seems like, to me, it seems like more work what you're doing than writing a traditional book, but it's definitely different work. So I, I just threw a lot at you, but how does it feel to have to compile all this stuff and go out and gather all of them and decide which ones to do? It seems like a ton. Okay, well, I mean, the Stones book, which was the first one I did, because having okay. seen the Stones, having decided to do that book, I did a book on the Rolling Stones between 1962 and 69, which is when Brian Jones left the band and obviously Brian died in July 69. For those shows, I wrote to a lot of local newspapers, both in the UK, but also in North America. Quite hard to actually get US newspapers to pick my letter up sometimes. But when I did, I'd get quite a good response. You might get 20 or 30 different stories. In the UK, where when they started out, the Stones were playing six or seven nights a week. And before they'd had the hit record, they were playing maybe to 20 or 30 people. They were playing so many shows that almost every town in the UK got a visit by the Rolling Stones before Uh, satisfaction broke and they became a lot more volume. Yeah. So if I wrote to a local newspaper and said, I'm looking for fans who were at the show at your local town hall 50 years ago this month, would you run a story on it? They'd either come back and say, yeah, write us up a piece. Or they would say, give us a letter and put it in our letters column and see how you get on. So I got lots of people through that. But yeah, that is a lot of work. That's a lot of scouring uh, newspaper listings, looking for the addresses of uh, newspapers, finding out who the editor is, hoping that the editor is actually going to read your email. And when did this first one come out? Straight to the trash. 
that came out in 2016. Were you using the internet at that point? Because my dad, I know, just found you and I think you were chatting on Facebook Messenger or something and he found your email and that's how he wrote it. That sounds a lot easier. Trying to dig through newspapers and put out columns to get attention and do it that way. Man, I, I underestimated how hard it sounds. Well, after the Stones book, I realized there was quite a lot of work involved in that. But what the Stones book did is it gave me the foundations for a second book, which was about the Beatles. Because loads of people who saw the Stones said, oh, and I saw the Beatles, let me tell you about that. So I had 20,000 words for a Beatles book. So I finished the Beatles book. But I then started using Facebook. So I went with The Who, which was the third book I did. I started going on Facebook groups, which were about The Who. And if right. somebody said, yeah, I saw that when Keith Moon was in the band, I would fire off a message to that person via Messenger. And if I was lucky, people would respond because one of the beauties of Facebook, but also one of its quirks, is that if you send a message to a complete stranger, it doesn't necessarily appear in their inbox. These things are filtered off to stop crazy people like me reaching out <laughs> to complete strangers right. who don't necessarily want to be reached out to. Yeah. But when I got a response, and, and, and often people would get a, a message from me, they'd check me out online, see I've had a couple of books published, and they'd come back to me and say, yes, I did see The Who, I'd love to um, tell you about it. That is also a lot of work because it's maybe one in 10 of those messages actually gets a reply. And even when people tell you, yes, I've got a great story, I'll tell you all about it. For different reasons, sometimes that doesn't happen. Maybe they've got other things going on in their life or they decide, you know what, why should I write a story for this guy? I'm not that big a Who fan or right, right. Whatever I'm not a biased book be. anyway. <laughs> but with with yeah. the Korean book, for example, yes, I did manage to reach out to and make contact with and get stories from 500 different people from the beginning of the Cream's career right through to the end in 1968 and then on to the reunion concerts in 2005. That was the coolest part to me when I flipped through. And first of all, for people that are listening, that 500 number is wild. It's a big book. And of course, the stories aren't crazy long because the people you're getting to write them aren't writers necessarily. So there's so many stories in there, which is great to me. And you can go through them quickly, which I love. It's more like a collection of short stories almost than it is one big novel. They just happen to be tied together by this theme. But the reunion part of it is really, really cool because you skipped decades and then you still got to read people that had the same feelings as people 10 pages prior that were in 1968. And to me, that was like, it was so amazing to be able to see how much people love them so much and the different kind of people that got to go see the new one or the same people saw both. And it was just a really interesting experience that if you try to meet someone on the street, like a music fan, I'm sure you have stories for each other, but they're not this specific. And to see them all in one place makes you go, oh, when I go see a concert and feel a certain way, it's not just me. Everyone gets this feeling. And uh, when I was flipping through that book, I just couldn't put it down. I was like, this is such an interesting vibe. It feels like you were there a little bit. I didn't get a chance. I wasn't alive. I didn't get to go see any of that. And when you watch it on TV, you get some of that. If I watch it on YouTube, I pull up a big concert, whatever. But when you're really reading firsthand accounts, especially from people that aren't writers, because it feels so much more, I don't know, a writer has a way to kind of put it together in such a nice way that you kind of don't know what's real and what's not, which is good in some capacities. How do you deal with that? Because you're getting 500 people or maybe more and are you doing a lot of editing of their stuff or are you just kind of letting it rip because you want it to feel natural? I would say every entry in the book has been polished to a lesser or greater extent mm. because some people will give you maybe 20 words and you have to go back to them, ask them a couple more questions and tease a bit more information out of them. And some people write 10,000 words. Oh, really? Just drown the whole, yeah, and then you are taking a load of stuff out. But it's got to be interesting to have to read through. <laughs> it can be. No, it can be. It can be. You know, sometimes stories are great and it's like, yeah. well, I need to cut this because it's too long, but what can I possibly leave out? So that can be quite painful. And some people, when they see the finished story, say, hey, you've butchered my story and get quite yeah. upset about it. But... Yeah, but that's the job. I mean, what are you supposed to do? You can't have 10 pages taken up by one person when you have 500 stories. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. I mean, the, the passion of people for Cream is what shines through and the reunion shows, which clearly garnered a great deal of excitement all around the world when it was announced they were going to play the shows in London at the Royal Albert Hall in 2005. And people were traveling from Australia. They were traveling from the United States. They were traveling from Canada. People were desperate to get tickets. And there's one story in the book about the guy, who, I think he paid something like $5,000 for a pair of tickets 
and then managed to get other tickets, which were a little cheaper. So I thought he'd sell his $5,000 tickets that he got from a scalper. And then realised when he was outside the Royal Albert Hall that he wasn't going to achieve that kind of money at all. And ended up giving a pair of tickets away to somebody just because he thought they should see the show. That's an amazing story. Yeah, you got so many different things. When I first picked it up, I was like, admittedly, and this isn't a knock because I was wrong. I was like, oh, how many stories can I hear about how you felt when you heard the music? You know, in my head, that's what it was. And then I got so many stories like what you just said of like, oh, it's not just it's not they're not all the same. It's just the experience that those people had. Some of them are totally wild. I don't want to spoil them. And some of them are really just internal, like what I said, like how you feel when you first heard the music. Or I remember my dad's was talking about the set list, I think, or something like that. There was just so many different aspects that I was like, wow, this didn't get repetitive at all. This didn't get boring at all. Nothing like that. And it could have, but it's a testament to your work trying to figure out not only which ones to add in, but where they should go, don't put two in a row probably that are exactly the same. You put it in chronological order, which I really liked because it felt like you were reading through the history of the band as it happened. And uh, I just found all of that very interesting because the process, did you know all of this, like how to do all those things in the first Rolling Stones book? Or was this kind of a work in progress? Like this is getting better as we go. I learned a few tricks each time I do a different book and Obviously, what you're trying to do is tell the story of a band. And, and with Cream, it was quite easy in one sense because they were only in existence first time round for less than two and a half years. Right. And those very first shows were, although they were three amazing talents that were hired, you know, if you were a booking agent, you could book them for £70, two 45-minute sets in a club in England. £70 wouldn't even buy a ticket if a Cream were to play now. Right. So, And then you get that career arc where they go to America they start playing bigger and bigger shows. And then at the end, you know, they're playing Madison Square Garden, 1968. So that playing in front of a few people to playing in front of thousands of people and the pace of their career and how crazy it got at the end is, is told. And what obviously what it doesn't do is tell you everything about some of the band dynamics and the backstage politics that blighted Cream's career. But all those issues are documented in all the other books about Cream. You know, yeah, that's why Eric I like talking that. about it. And, yeah, because yeah. you get that everywhere. You can get that on any bookshelf anywhere. Not that it's not good, but you knew that you wanted to do your own version of this. And it really stands out, which a lot of other music books don't necessarily stand out. Yeah, so I, I, what I'd say, if somebody said to me, this isn't a complete authoritative history of Cream, I'd say, you're right, it isn't. It's a companion volume to Jack Bruce's autobiography or to Eric's or to Ginger's. You know, and you need to read those things in conjunction with with the other books. And there are some really good books about cream. I'm not claiming that mine knocks any of those off their perch, but it is it's a different take on it deliberately and hopefully gives more flavor of the 1960s. I mean, some of what I like about the book is people will tell you how they did a gardening job to save up their pocket money to pay for the first single they bought or right. the fact that they had to bunk off school to go and buy tickets or they had to leave work early and make up a story to their boss about why they wanted to leave or why they arrived late at work the next day because it was to go and see cream in, in a different town or whatever. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why it was so interesting when I picked it up. I'm like, of course, all these stories are different. They're so crazy. I don't know how many stories do you get or have to cut out whatever it is, you ended up with the perfect amount that all of them are not the same as one another. Do you have the luxury of getting more stories than you need? Or are you trying to find a way to fit all of them in in the right spot? I try to fit every entry in if I can. Oh, wow. But that does involve a lot of editing, you know, yeah. and sometimes you might have two stories that are very similar and therefore what you have to do is actually edit quite a bit out of one so that it doesn't repeat what the other story says. I see. Or it might I be see. two accounts of the same show. But then the other exciting stroke interesting element is when you get more than one account of the same show and people have different memories. So going back to that Rolling Stones book, there were three accounts of one show in, in the US and everybody remembers the Stones opening with a different number. <laughs> 
So at least two of them must be wrong. Maybe all three are (laughs) wrong. Who knows? Yeah, that would be funny. But that's my favorite part is that it doesn't need to be these other things. It doesn't even need to be correct. It just needs Mm -hmm. that part of it is so funny to read through, especially since those three will be in a row because it's chronological order. So you see that immediately and can't ignore it. And it gets a good laugh, if nothing else. Yeah. And that happens with in the Korean book that they played a show on the Isle of Man, which is a small island about 50 miles off the coast of England. And bands would play there in the summer because they would have holiday makers come over. So in the 1960s, bands like the Beatles and the Stones and Cream would go over, maybe do one show and then fly back to England or get the ferry back to England. But it was a big holiday destination for Scottish factory workers. So in Scotland, factories would close down for two weeks. Everybody would go on holiday to resorts in the northwest of England. Uh And lots of them would go to the Isle of Man. So it would be two weeks of drinking and partying and because they were Scotsmen looking for trouble, basically looking for a punch-up. They were trying to start a fight with Cream, so they were throwing objects at the band while they were performing. Oh, boy. And at one point, Ginger stood up from behind the drum kit and said, if you don't stop throwing those blank things, I'm going to come out there and sort you out. One person in the book remembers that it was peanuts that were being thrown, but somebody else remembers it being old British pennies, which were quite large coins, oh. you know, maybe three times the size of a quarter and oh, wow. quite heavy. So if you got one of those launched at you, you would really know about it. Yeah, it's worse than a peanut. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> it is so funny how people's memories change based on all this stuff. I also find it interesting that some of the charm about it is that these concerts were a while ago. So you do get that wonky memory. If you were doing a, you know, any recent concert, you might not have it that way. Although I guess you still might. It would be interesting to do. It brings me to the question of, first of all, how many of these books have you done so far? There's been a lot. I've done 16 so far. Oh, wow. That's even more than I thought. Yeah. 16 is, that's a lot of books to put out. How long does it take you to do one of them? Well, I I think of it as having five or six different pots on the top of the stove and they're all bubbling away and you bring the one to the front of the stove when you've got enough material to actually produce the book. But I've I've done some books of my own volition, Cream, The Stones being another one, and I've done a couple of books which were commissions. So at the moment, my next book is going to be on Jethro Tull, which has been commissioned by a publisher in conjunction with, with the band's management. So Ian Anderson's given it his approval and he's going to do an interview with me for the book because oh, they awesome. liked the idea of the, the fans take on the history. So that is amazing. So that explains why some of them have different titles than the others, I guess. That's right. Yes. Got it. And for people that are wondering, if you just go to your author page on Amazon, you can pretty much find all of them. Yeah, uh, they're I'll all post- on there. If you, yeah, if I'll you post that link in the description also. Jethro Tull is going to be a fun one. Also, Is that the first time you've gotten to interview a member of the band or artist or whatever inside of the book? Is this going to be the first time that happened or have you done that before? No, I did that with um, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Weirdly, they're a band who I grew up with. And when I was asked to do the book about them, I thought, well, yeah, I know a couple of their songs. But actually, they'd had 16 top 40 hits in the UK. Oh, I recognize all those songs. By the way, it's extremely rare that I get caught off guard with a band that I've never really heard of, especially one that's popular or been written about or something. Somehow, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, OMD for the fans, got past me. Never knew about it. And since we're getting a couple more listeners on the podcast, I'm getting cognizant of the bots that try to shut me down with copyright laws. So I'm putting it in the background of this while I talk over it. You can listen. You can still hear it. This is their biggest hit, Nola Gay. I hadn't really heard of it, but it's interesting. Big in the 80s, English electronic band, Andy McCluskey, Paul Humphreys, Martin Cooper, Stuart Kershaw, if that means anything to you. Those are the guys. Regarded as pioneers of electronic music, OMD combined an experimental minimalist ethos with pop sensibilities, becoming central figures in the late 70s, early 80s emergence of synth pop. 12 top 20 hits on the UK singles charts, 3 top 20 hits on the US Billboard Top 100, including this very song that you're hearing in the background. Influence on many later artists, sold 40 million records worldwide. I don't know, got past me. I learn something new every day. And admittedly, I was trying to talk about OMD as long as possible so you could hear more of the song, but truth be told, I'm out of stuff. I can only read the Wikipedia for so long. Oh wait, I have something here. OMD are the subject of two 2001 tribute albums, which feature interpretations by the likes of... I mean, none of these you've ever heard of. Not even gonna read them. You can go to the Wikipedia if you want to. The group's songs have also been covered by acts including... Now here are the hits. MGMT, Boy George, Good Charlotte, No Effects, 
I like those bands. Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Kid Cudi, David Guetta, Moby? Eminem doesn't like him. Moby, you can get stomped by Obi. Anyway, you get it. The edits are getting out of control. OMD, learn something new. When I went out and bought their Greatest Hits CD thinking I need to be up to speed on their back catalogue, all those songs came flooding back because they'd had so many different hits that just seep into your consciousness. Yeah, that's interesting. It brings a different feeling to the entire book, even if you just put it in the foreword or something like that, where you know that the author spoke to that person. To me, mm-hmm. that would give uh, not a sense of legitimacy because truthfully, you don't even need it since it's fan experiences anyway. But it really makes the whole thing feel more connected. And uh, I'll have to read that one. I got to order like, uh, I've got to order 16 books, I guess. (laughs) So many of them. And they're all good bands. How do you choose which artists to cover? Just who you like? Yeah, so Jethro Tull is a commission. So I've been approached to do that book. Same with Orchestral News in the Dark. And the same with Simple Minds, who I did a book about last year. And again, a band who've had a long career, big success, both sides of the pond. But other than that, it is bands that I'm a fan of. So Cream, hopefully do a book on Thin Lizzy next year. Got a book oh. on Queen coming out later this year, coming out in November. I got to get that who one. I saw four times with Freddie. Did you really? Because, yeah, and, that, and that's the thing, you know, it, it's about doing what excites me. The book on Cream, I've published with through my own company because the publishing company that has done the book on orchestral maneuvers in the dark and simple minds said there isn't enough money in these books for us to do them unless they are endorsed by the act themselves. Okay. So then I was faced with, well, I'm only going to do books that they want me to do and not necessarily books. I want to do. So I set up my own publishing company. Listen, I know it's tough. Summertime has come and gone. It's the fall now, which is pretty cool still. But just because it's not summer anymore, don't you dare let anyone tell you that you can't wear sunglasses anymore. Sunglasses are for all year round. Get that straight. And where do you get stylish sunglasses at a really good price? Oh, I don't know, maybe Ambassador, ambassadorsun.com. Check it out. They have a lot of cool pairs for men and women and everything in between or on either side. Very stylish. Worried about price? I gotcha. Fill up your cart, enter promo code THELINK, T-H-E-L-I-N-K. Before you check out, you'll get a whopping 50% off. Ridiculous. Not going to get it anywhere else. Do it. Get yourself some shades, look good, squeeze in some time before the winter hits. We don't want to get there, we're not rushing it, just do it now so you're ready. AmbassadorSun.com I set up my own publishing company, and Cream is the first book published through my own company. That's very cool. Congratulations, first of all. That must feel good to be able to get it out on your own. Is it becoming partly like a... You're only going to do bands that you like, I'm sure. But you hear when big actors sign on to a studio, they get one movie for them and then one movie for the studio. Is it kind of, is that kind of the balance that you're trying to find? Like, I'll do this one and then I'll do my own and then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you've summed it up very well, because if I'm just writing about bands whose music I don't particularly like or enjoy, then it just becomes a job. And I've just retired from working for a not-for-profit organization here in the UK, which would pay me a hell of a lot more money than writing books. (laughs) Right. So you damn well better like what you're doing. Yeah, I'm very much, very much doing this because I enjoy it. And I want to write about those acts that I saw or would have liked to have seen. You know, I did a book on Jimi Hendrix, who died when I was 10 years old. Even if I'd been able to go and see him. My dad wouldn't have allowed it because he did not approve of rock and roll music. My dad. Really? Yeah. My dad was born in 1933. He, he did national service in, in Britain in the army. So he was one of those kids who basically his teenage years were lost to wearing a sure. uniform. So he didn't approve of Elvis Presley because uh, he didn't uh-huh. get to be much of a rocker himself. And then after Elvis, it's just no to everybody, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Certainly Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger was persona oh, non yeah. grata in our house, as far as he <laughs> yeah. was concerned. Well, if anyone's going to be persona non grata, it's probably going to be him. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've got a rock and roll dad, you see. You know, you've got a, a dad who's <laughs> I do. maybe introduced you to all kinds of different things. Oh, I wouldn't know anything without him. Yeah, for sure. I guess that's kind of the point of rock and roll is that all the people in your generation were not all, but a lot of them were going through that similar thing where the parents didn't approve and the older generation didn't want to hear it. And then the newer generation was like, this is our stuff. And I guess that always happens. But 
it's funny that it can drive you so hard into the thing because someone disapproved of it. And now you have this amazing book line and you're like, all right, dad, sorry, but it's working out pretty well for me. My son has an interesting mix of musical taste because he, he's inherited some of my likes, such as sure. The Stones, Neil Young, Black Sabbath. But he also likes stuff that I would never listen to, like grime, people like Stormzy and some of these other acts that, you know. If people don't know what grime is, it's a genre. It's electronic. It's dancey, I guess. It's really big in the UK. And it's kind of rappy also. It's usually very fast, aggressive, electronic rap. I don't know if it needs rap, but it feels like it there. Anyway. To which I cannot listen to that kind of music for more than three or four seconds. <laughs> but I have to recognize that I am falling into the trap that my dad fell into. Exactly. Didn't like Mick Jagger. Exactly. It's the same exact thing. I know. And it's funny how hard it is to relate to the thing that's not your generation. I, it happens to me. Even stuff that's coming out now, I'm like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. And I yeah. feel terrible for not getting it. I'm like, I want to get it. I want to understand the mumble rap phenomenon, but I just, I don't get it. <laughs> it's, it's hard. Did you write any, this sounds like an ugly word because I love the stuff that you're doing, but have you written any traditional stuff? Were you always a writer or did this avenue spark your writing career? I've always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer when I was a little kid. I've still got the very first story I wrote, which was maybe 300 words about a, a pixie. And oh, wow. Peter the Pixie, the story, and my cousin even did some illustrations for it, but uh, it never got any further than that. So you have to career... you have to put that in the back of the next book. You have to. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so good. I'll, yeah, I'll have to find, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe with Jethro Tull with the, uh, the sort of it would be perfect. And themes they have in some of their like, songs from the wood. I exactly. Kind of it's so perfect. And you have your own publishing company now. Who's going to tell you now? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, amazing. Anyway, I cut you off. Go on. But yeah, so I've always wanted to be a writer, but, you know, sometimes life takes you down different channels. And I ended up, like I say, working for not-for-profits in the housing mm -hmm. sector. So I spent 40 years trying to help save the world's homeless people from having to live on the street. And now I'm oh, good for you. taking a different path. We could use you in the US if you want to come over. <laughs> oh, we've got plenty of homeless people here. Yeah, I'm sure. Very much, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. Did you continue writing even just on your own throughout your life? Or did you kind of put it down? And then once you were nearing retirement from that job, you just decided, well, now's the time to do it. I've been writing all the time. But what's different about the world now is that years ago, publishers controlled very much what appeared. So you would write a chapter, send it off with a covering letter to a publisher, wait three months and pray. The letter comes back. You can tell from the lack of creases on the paper, they've not even read what you've sent in. Yeah. And, and I've still got a stack of rejection letters somewhere, as lots of very famous and much better writers than me, no doubt, have, because very few people crack it first time round. Of course. So it's quite, it can be quite disheartening when you're doing that. But now you can do it yourself, of course. You know, I can write something on my computer. I can upload it via Kindle onto Amazon and I right. can write something now and it could be published and available for the world this evening if I was quick enough on the draw. And, and I think that's great. It does mean there's obviously a lot of stuff out there. So as oh, a yeah. discerning reader, how do you find what's worth looking at and what isn't? But that's a different challenge, you know, and that's why Amazon is so huge because there's so much stuff out there. But how do I then get my cream book or my queen book or my Jethro Toll book into the mind into the eyes of the potential consumer and that's that's a whole different challenge how do you well some of it is through adverts on things like facebook some of it is hoping to get coverage in the traditional music magazines so i, re I sent review copies to quite a few of the music magazines hoping that they would um, give it some column inches sure that makes sense stuff like this you know, talking to mega popular yourself, podcasts you know, sure yeah 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 because you know you can't hope to cover every avenue. Certainly, you're not a small publisher. And, and not these not days, anyway. There's too many. No. And I'm not expecting to sell a million copies. You know, right. I, if, I, if I cover my costs in producing this book, that would be great. And if it makes a small amount of money, then that, I'd invest that in the next book. Yeah. Because this is, it is a labor of love rather than a, a money-making venture. But there will come a point where if I'm not selling books, I'll have lots and lots of boxes of books filling the house. <laughs> and my wife will say, stop already. We haven't got room for any more books to be published and then not sell. It's nice. You have a library now. <laughs> yeah, I think, though, there's another aspect to it. And I feel this way about the podcast where I don't necessarily have a niche for this podcast. And I've talked about it a million times. So if you're sick of hearing it for the listeners, sorry. But... 
I like it better this way because it's more genuine for me. I found out about you. I was very intrigued and I wanted to talk to you. So I reached out to do it. And that's kind of the way I operate, whether it's an actor or a writer or anything. It doesn't matter who it is, but that does hurt listenership, I guess, in some ways, because it's not in one avenue necessarily. But what I do find is positive about it, which I think is also positive for you, is that it keeps you ultra passionate. You're only doing the things that you really, truly care about and want to do. And so the product itself, in my head, I don't know if this is true, but I think it's true, actually becomes better because your passion will inevitably make you work harder on it and want it to be perfect. And if you're just faking it and doing it for money, and if you say you just wanted to do, I don't have a good band example, but someone that was just super popular that you didn't actually enjoy, I don't think the book is going to come out as good. You could fake it, but I think you can tell. So it's this interesting thing that you have to stay passionate about and you have to try to sell it and making those two worlds meet. I haven't figured out how to do it yet, but I'm with you. I'm trying. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. I, what's really interesting when it comes to gathering stories is it's sometimes better to talk to somebody who's only seen a band once because they have clear memories about that act oh. than somebody who's seen the band 50 or 60 times or even just six or seven times because their concert memories merge into one. That's they say, true. yeah, well, I saw them at such and such a venue. Uh, or was it the following year? I, you know, and they really sometimes can't remember all the detail, which I totally get because yeah. I suffer from that problem myself. I've two or three acts that I'm quite passionate about and I've seen a number of times, but I can't always remember every show that I've seen. So unless you of keep course. a diary or a spreadsheet, sometimes it's hard to recall all those details. But I, I mean, one band I like and a band I've done a book about is a band called The Wedding Present, who are an English indie band. They've been going since the 1980s. And that was in conjunction with the band. The lead singer is a guy called David Gedge. And they don't have a huge following in the mm -hmm. UK or the US. I mean, they do tour America every sure, few years. Relatively. But, but they only get audiences of maybe seven or 800 people right. come to see them. And they and they only can do the, you know, the West and East Coast. And they haven't, well, maybe they do have a huge following in Louisiana and places like that, but they don't know about it if they do. <laughs> right. So their lead singer has made a career out of music. You know, they don't make a lot of money. But he's never had to start giving guitar lessons or give up right. work music and start working as a music teacher or a delivery driver to make ends meet. Yeah, he's that sounds to damn good to me. Career. And his overriding philosophy is, I write the songs that I want to hear, not what somebody else wants to hear. If people like them, great. If they don't, so be it. I, I love that's that. That's a really good, yeah, that's a really good motto, I think, a really good way to sort of do things. Because if you enjoy doing what you're doing, provided you've got enough to live on, then <laughs> right. what more do you need, really? That is the trick. <laughs> you, need, you still need something. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm with you every step of the way. Welfare um, payments, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's always options. I want to go back to Queen. You said you saw them four times with Freddie? Yes. What was that like? I did. I saw them. Well, first time I saw them was in 1976. So A Night at the Opera had been released. Fantastic. And they did a show in Hyde Park in central London, which was a free show. So it was September 1976. It was actually the first concert I ever went to, if you don't what? count the Beatles, who I saw in 1964. Oh, wait, okay. when I was four years old. Poor guy, my your mother. first concert, if you don't count the Beatles. <laughs> so Beatles and Queen <laughs> off the top must have been tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I went to see Queen in Hyde Park in London. It was a free concert. The Stones had done three concerts in London. Uh, Pink Floyd did it. You know, in the late 60s, there were two or three of them. But when sure. Queen did it, I think it was the first one that had been done for a number of years. And famously, they overran and they were ready to come out and do an encore. But the police wouldn't let them come out because it's a very ritzy part of London. And late. the residents around there are very hot on noise. Yeah. So... The, the band were all ready to come out and do an encore and were told they couldn't. It's a legendary concert in the sense that it was Queen repaying their fans for supporting them all through the years because Night at the Opera had been big. Bohemian Rhapsody had been number one in the UK right. for nine weeks. And they were arguably at that point one of the top two or three bands in the whole world. So doing a free show was quite a gesture. And if you went to see a, a band in Hyde Park in London now, as I did the Stones seven or eight years ago, you're paying money again. You're paying 80, 100 pounds to stand in a park. Queen did it for free. Yeah, because they know they can, I guess. So they're going to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's some of it's about the whole professionalization of the music industry. So yeah, you do pay more money, but 
what you get is a more professional show. You get a sound system you can actually hear. You're not reliant on the wind blowing in the right direction. Yeah, you know, the lighting yeah, yeah. shows better. You've got the big video screens that you maybe didn't have 15, 20, certainly not 40 years ago where you couldn't really see what was going on. So I guess if we had the choice, we'd probably all choose to pay that extra bit of money to get the full concert so. experience. But it probably didn't feel that way What we don't want then. is the people who film it. <laughs> That's yeah. true. We definitely don't want them. They can leave and then we all have more space. <laughs> yeah. 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 I agree. That's an interesting take. Yeah. You're right. I mean, of course you want it to sound better, but I would imagine that if I were there then, you didn't know the difference. So it still sounded great and you got it for free. <laughs> so it must yeah. feel nostalgic yeah. to be like, yeah, that, it was better then. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Queen is probably. I did a podcast episode with my dad, episode 15, if people are listening, go back to that. It's one of my favorite ones. And I tried to figure out who my favorite band was, and it was super hard. I couldn't possibly do it, but I landed on Queen just because you can't miss with them. And also, fun fact for the listeners, it's early for me, and my voice is not generally properly warmed in the morning. And when I'm recording a podcast, I want to sound right. So my first thought was, oh, I'll just put on a Queen song and try to sing along to that. And it didn't go that well. Maybe I'll put some secret footage in here of me trying to be Freddie terribly. But let me tell you, it worked. The voice is definitely warm. I would love to go see them even now. How do you feel about them with Adam Lambert? That's interesting because I've asked that same question of lots of people who've given me stories for the book. Oh, nice. And there is clearly a, a divide between the people who say, no, it can't possibly be the same. And they should have stopped once Freddie was no longer able to perform. Yeah. And those who say, good luck on them. You know, Brian and Roger want to go out on the road yeah. and play their music. Why shouldn't they? It's not the same, and if, if Adam, but it's still great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really tempted to make another edit here. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was really tempted to put that song Maps by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs Maps, you know, but, you know, this will have to do. I think he does an uh, unbelievable I, job. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've not seen them, but having heard people say you should go and see them, I would do that. Yeah, I've just seen videos and heard snippets and he at least makes it his own and is still very loud and flashy. And so it still yeah. fits the, even if it's a poor man's Freddy, I'd still rather see them play than not see them play. And the rest of them hold up really well. Brian's still ripped. It's like the movie. If you went and saw Bohemian Rhapsody at the cinema, and if you know Queen's history, you could sit there and pull holes in it, saying, well, yes. they're playing that song in the wrong place because they hadn't recorded it then, 100%. and they're doing this, and that's now sequence. But actually, and I went kind of with that mindset, thinking this is not going to be great. Yeah. And I was wowed by the movie. I thought they did really well. I thought oh, the way too. they recreated Live Aid, for example which is footage we've all seen a hundred times. It was fantastic. I thought they did a really good job. That was my and favorite part as well. It was a really affectionate tribute. Yeah, I thought Rami Malek did a really good job as Freddy. And people shat on that movie, for lack of a better term. And I just thought it was kind of silly. It was like, you got to see stuff in this movie that you wouldn't have seen, like that concert. A few of the moments I was like, this is worth the hundred minutes that I'm watching this, even if it's just for a couple of scenes that, I'll remember for a long time. Although I will say, and it's not the same thing, but they came out around the same time. The Rocket Man movie, the Elton John movie with Taron Egerton oh, yeah. was better than Bohemian Rhapsody because he sang all the stuff. And I would have, even if it's not as good, I don't care. I find that more interesting. I would have liked to see Queen do that because when I was watching Bohemian Rhapsody, it did kind of feel a little bit like I'm just listening to the soundtrack and watching them act. Whereas in Rocket Man, I really felt like they were going for the whole entire thing. But Rocket Man was a musical, wasn't it? It was like an old-fashioned sure. Hollywood musical. Yes, and you're that, right. I mean, that was really clever, that the way they moved from one scene into another and it was, yeah. oh, everything changed. And this costume Beautiful changed. Film. I thought that was a really well-put-together film. And again, I didn't necessarily have high expectations. Oh, but I was wowed by that. I, th I thought it was a really good film. But I think, in one sense, it's unfair to compare them because they weren't trying to do the same thing. Yeah, you're right. That's fair. I stand corrected. Good point. I've been comparing those movies for years and now I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you said the Stones are your favorite band. Uh -huh. Who is, well, I guess you probably have a, a lot of books planned already. You said you have the Queen one coming out, the Jethro Tull one. Who are some bands that you love and either plan on doing or 
haven't yet planned on doing, but what's your wish list looking like? Okay, so Thin Lizzy are another right. band who I'm hoping to do a book on. I've started compiling material on them. So if that comes to pass, that will be next summer. Another band where you know the lead singer died yeah. 35, 36 years ago now and is, is much missed. I mean, the band yeah. still carry on without him, whether it's should be the same band or the same name is, yep. is one for debate, I think. I'm, Pink Floyd fans everywhere just going insane. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the another act I'm interested in is Billy Bragg, who's okay. uh, you know somebody who's got quite a small profile really, and he's not necessarily a household name. But I saw him quite a few times in the 80s and 90s. He's still going, and there is possibly a book in the works with him. Oh. That, those conversations have been ongoing with the publisher Fantastic. for a while. So I've said I'd like to do that book if it comes off, and I'm still hoping it might. Fingers crossed. It sounds yeah. like you're planning to release one every year, every six months. I mean, it depends how many yeah. you have in the works, I guess. Yeah, every four to six months. If I can do three a year, that would be great. Oh, wow. What I've found with setting up my own publishing company, of course, is I'm not just writing the books. I'm also liaising with the graphic designer. I'm liaising with the printer. Sure. I become the distribution department. I have to deal with all the Amazon emails. I have to take the books to the post office and get them shipped. I have oh, to really? deal with customer queries if they don't arrive. So how do you feel about that? I hadn't appreciated it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm spending a lot less time writing and more time on the marketing and distribution and sales. Sure. But it has to feel a little better that you did everything. Like you can point to this cream book and say, none of this happens without me. Not that it's an egotistical I, thing. I do. But... Yeah. I mean, the, you've seen the cream book. I, I was really pleased with how it turned out. Beautiful. Because I went to a professional printer's, but I didn't know what I was actually going to get back. And even though I knew the guys who ran that company, I couldn't be sure what they were going to deliver to me. But no, I'm, I'm very happy with it. And, and the feedback I've had on the book has been really good. You know, everybody's been really positive about it. I just need yeah. tens of thousands of other people to hold the book in their hand and <laughs> say the same thing. Yeah, hopefully we can get you on the path. I have so many questions. I'm curious about other musical books that you've liked. Is there any that you've read recently? that you're enjoying, although it sounds like you have your hands full. <laughs> so I don't know how you possibly find the time. Well, I've always got a, a pile of books by the side of the bed that I'm trying to get through. Same. And the one I'm reading at the moment is a book about the Beatles called You Never Give Me Your Money. Oh. And the author of it escapes me at the moment, but it's about the breakup of the Beatles. I got you. You Never Give Me Your Money, colon, The Beatles After the Breakup, came out in 2010 by Peter Doggett. $17.50 for the hardcover. On Amazon, they have the paperback also. It's available on Prime. Or go to a bookstore. That seems cooler and a nicer thing to say. And, Dad, if you're listening, go buy that, would you? I want to borrow it from you. So when they were, you know, on the verge of sure. splitting up and all the problems they got into with the Apple Corporation and... Yeah, the Let It Be album. Like I was just saying about my setting up my own publishing company, they set up Apple thinking, oh, great, we'll set up our own company and we'll do things differently from business. What they didn't realize is they had to then run Apple and they couldn't just leave yeah, it they to didn't other people. Want to. So... Some of the tensions in the band there are covered in this book. And it's a really interesting book because it huh. highlights, you know, what was going on. And I didn't realize, for example, how George and John really weren't getting on at the end with each other. Because I'd always assumed that Paul was the odd one out and that it was Paul who was... Yeah. It's hard to imagine George not getting along with anyone. I mean, he even stayed friends with Eric Clapton after they did a wife swap. So, I mean... If you haven't listened to episode 15 with my dad, you're missing out a whole lot more on that story. It's fascinating. Go back to it. I'm telling you, it's good. I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> How did he possibly I think he was, ever fight I think with he anyone? was frustrated about not having an opportunity to, to get his songs heard and recorded. Yeah. And I think he sounds like he kind of viewed John as the, the major obstacle there. But it'll be interesting because the new Beatles film... Can't wait. Get Back, it's called. Is, yeah, Get Back covers the same ground. But it covers the as, Let It Be album, yeah. Does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Oh, you thought I forgot. I noticed it. Just can't overdo it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really psyched for that movie. I can't imagine it's going to be bad. So I'm really having high expectations for it because A, it's footage we've never seen before of stuff we want to see. B, it's Peter Jackson. And C, we just got the Paul McCartney thing. Did you watch that? I think it was on Hulu. I haven't seen that, no. It, that was really good. So if you're into the Beatles, I would definitely recommend yeah. it. But this feels like not just a normal documentary, but a documentary about what every Beatles fan 
has always wanted to know about. The first thing you want to know about is what happened with that whole ending period. And now they're doing, it's going to be long. They were, it was going to be one movie and now it's three different parts on Disney plus, which I'm psyched about. I'm wondering if they're going to give us the whole concert unedited because it's never really been released before the rooftop yeah, concert. True. Yeah. So that would be really saw, cool. I've seen the trailer and the footage, the quality of the footage looks fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, I was um, expecting it might be a bit grainy or they might be very scratched, but no, the, what I saw was like, it could have been shot yesterday. Yesterday. Isn't it crazy? Peter Jackson. I know I didn't see this one, but he did a, I think it was world war one. But it was some kind of documentary where he restored very old footage and colorized. And I was like, that can't be good. And then I saw the trailer for it and I was like, oh my God, this guy is a wizard, pun intended. And it's just amazing the stuff he can do. So yeah, I'm really, really psyched about that one. A book I'll recommend to you if you haven't read it already, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He came out with a book called Acid for the Children. And it's actually not really about the Chili Peppers years. If anyone wants that, Scar Tissue by Anthony Kiedis is a good one, although that's dark, but it's good. But Fleas is really interesting because if you're a fan of them, I just happen to be a huge fan of him and them. And it goes through his whole childhood and up until the teenage years and when he meets Hillel Slovak and he dies and early stages of the band. And that was a really good one. So I would definitely check that out. And they have a new album coming out with John Frusciante, which should be amazing. I'm excited for that. Are there any current musical artists that you're really into or are you mostly sticking to your era? I'm, yes, I'm not ashamed to admit I'm a very 1970s kind of guy, really. Yeah, so, so am I. And it's not necessarily to denigrate what other people are doing. It's just there's so much old stuff that I either would like to listen to again and again or even old stuff that I've never quite got around to. So, for example, I'm a big fan of The Faces with Rod Stewart. Sure. But I'd like to get more into Humble Pie, which was, you know, Steve Marriott's band. Absolutely. And he left to plow his own furrow. You're right. It's like, I find this with every week that passes, because today is Friday when we're recording this. And every Friday, I look for stuff that just released. All albums come out on Fridays. And I find so much more often with every week, month, year that passes, that instead of listening to all the new stuff that comes out, I'm like, well, there's so much that I haven't gotten to. And I never will get to. And so I just keep going further and further back. It's like I'm moving in the wrong direction musically, but I happen to enjoy it more. So I totally relate to what you're saying. Yeah. So, I mean, I admire the people who can actually stay on top of new music and know what's going on and hold on to their knowledge of existing acts as well. I try so hard. It seems to me it's... (laughs) It's hard. Two years ago, I did... uh, My New Year's resolution (laughs) was to listen to 200 new albums for the year. And I was like, I could do it. It's not even one every day. I'll figure it out. And in that year, I didn't get to any old stuff at all. I was just listening to music that came out that year. And I enjoyed it. I completed it. And it was cool. And I felt very up to speed. Even stuff that I didn't like, I had to churn through. But I gave that up very quickly. Mm -hmm. Because if something pops into my head, I just need to go listen to it. I have been taking notes. I don't know if you saw as we've gone along to bands that you've named that I may recognize, but haven't really listened to either ever or recently. And right when we're done with this, I'm going to go catch up on them. (laughs) So it's so hard to play both sides of the fence. I'm hoping that someday I have enough time or somehow music speeds up a little more (laughs) that I can find a way to do both. All right. I know you have a time crunch and... I appreciate you doing this. This was really fun. We can go to your Amazon page to get all the books. Everybody should do that. Your website is www.spenwoodbooks.com. So that's S P E N W O O D books.com. Spenwoodbooks.com. I highly recommend them. I haven't read all of them. I definitely want to. I'm intrigued by the first one. I like the first ones of anything, even first albums. It's interesting to me. So I want to go back to that Stones one, especially since you're a huge fan. Uh-huh. And I'm looking forward to the Queen one too. When do you think that will come out? That's coming out December 3rd. Oh, soon? Yes, yes. It's fantastic. It goes to the printers at the end of next week. So we will hopefully, with all the paper shortages and driver shortages and in Britain, we have shortages of everything at the moment. We're not a shortage of Queen books. <laughs> You're a new expert on all of these different book publishing things now, huh? <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, I can't wait for that. And my favorite thing about these books, not only how good they are, but they're perfect to just be a coffee table book. You can just put it out. People can read one page at a time and still get something really fun out of it, which doesn't exist for other music biographies. So I'm really into it. I appreciate your work and thank you yeah. for doing this. This was fun. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Good stuff. Good app. Wish I had an English accent. So cool. Distinguished. Feels so regal. You know what bothers me way more than it should? And we glossed over it quickly, but we went back to it a couple of times. The people that go to concerts and hold their cell phones up and record. I can't with you. What are you doing? I've probably gotten caught taking a picture or two. That's different. Maybe a snippet of a song to send to somebody or something in the moment. But the people that opt to watch the whole thing through their phone, like, what are you doing? I wonder how that started. Like, who was the first person to think, well, I don't have to watch this with my eyes. I can watch it on a tiny little screen. Meanwhile, you're right there. So weird. Can't do anything without the phone. I mean, of course, that makes sense. We have this cool piece of tech that we never had before. We're basically cyborgs, if you think about it. We can't go anywhere without the phone, and the phone does so much stuff for us. It's basically attached to us. It's not inside of our body, but it's almost the same thing. We have a little pet robot that we hang out with all the time. We talk to it, we ask it questions, it tells us things. It does everything for us. It's like the Jetsons. Did they have a pet robot? They might have. I don't know. But of course our generation is a little bit fucked up in a million different ways. We're just adjusting to the fact that we literally live with this extreme artificial intelligence in our pocket. Imagine in 1900 we told people that a little robot will fly around and follow you and do every command you ask that's not physical, but I'm sure that's coming for people that are into that, I guess. And it can just sleep in your pocket. No big deal. I feel like people in 1900 didn't even have pockets, maybe? Let alone the thought of what would actually be in one? I don't know. I don't know how we got here. Anyway... Check out his books. I'll put the link in the description. They're very good, very interesting. Good coffee table book, good conversation starter. You can read a little bit at a time, no pressure. And only one thing left, secret code word for the people that listened all the way through the end, through this weird rant that I got into. Not sure how we got there, but I appreciate you for listening to it, for getting to the secret code word, because I know you love that. And this week, I'm going to tell you a story. Probably three nights a week for dinner, I have brown rice, chicken, and either broccoli or string beans. It's a go-to. It's very easy. It's quick. It's nutritious. I can feel good about myself. So I eat that a bunch. Every now and then, I'll switch the brown rice. I like a brown basmati. Don't get me wrong. I love it. And I rarely do white, but sometimes I'll do a yellow. And in fact, sometimes I'll do rice aroni, chicken flavored. It's great. It's nostalgic. I've ate it my whole life, and I enjoy it. Same meal with a twist, right? But if you're a rice aroni eater or aware of it at all, you know that the rice comes in the box, and then there's a little packet with the flavoring. So this week, I decide to, you know, I'm going to treat myself to a box. San Francisco treat. I open it up. I'm all ready. I got the butter. I got the dish. The water's in the pan. It's heating up. We're ready to rock. No flavoring packet. It's just not in there. It's just gone. It's just nothing. Just plain rice? What the fuck, dude? It's the reverse of a Cracker Jack box? Which, those aren't even great, but at least you get a prize. I don't know if that's a hot take. Point is, I was outraged. Couldn't eat that. Can't make it without the flavoring. What's the point? I don't have any saffron or whatever makes it yellow. It killed me. Had to go back to brown. It was fine. Tough day, though. Anyway, of course, on the heels of that, secret code word is San Francisco. You can do a couple of things. You can post SF. You can post a logo of your favorite sports team from the Bay Area. Speaking of which, if you're listening to this, I have launched my second podcast, Mike the Mush Sports. It's live on Twitch and on YouTube. I've posted the links everywhere on my social media. Go find it. If you're into sports, you'll like that. You can at Riceroni themselves. Tell them what's up. They should send me some stuff. They should be a sponsor. I'm open to it. I love you. San Francisco treat. You know, I'm, I can do it. I can do it. San Francisco, secret code word. Next week, if somehow you're still listening and you listen to episode 35 where I told you I had to cancel one of the podcasts because of my travel delays with Sean Soho, the lead singer of Crash Midnight. Coming for you next week. Get excited. I'll see you then.